Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Martin Hahn. We've, we've heard him before, and um, he's here in, um, in place of John. So thank you so much. Pastor Hahn. Thank you, Pastor. Charles Spurgeon would, uh, it said before, ever, he was the English Prince of Preachers, he was called, long, long since uh, departed to be with his Savior. But um, it was said that before every message that he preached, and he preached thousands of messages in his lifetime, on his way up to the pulpit, uh, there were always steps back then up into a pulpit, he would say this, God be gracious to me, the sinner. What the uh, publican says to uh, after the Pharisee, so just knowing that he is such a sinner and knowing that he only has God's grace to lean upon, he cries out, God be gracious to me, the sinner, which is what Spurgeon also said every time that he would preach. You have no idea how much you need the Holy Spirit working in me right now to preach this message. I have no idea how much I need the Holy Spirit working in you right now to receive this message, and so let us pray. Father in heaven, we turn all of our attention to you. Understanding that there is a world out there, and understanding that there is sorrow and suffering, and that those things are real, and yet, here, right now, we are your people that you have gathered, along with all those who call upon your name here, and along with all those who have preceded us, and the angels in heaven, to partake in this which we will be part of for all eternity. So Lord, give us eyes that see with faith. Give us ears that hear by your Spirit. And let it be your word. And your word alone that is preached and turned to and trusted. Let it be your word that infiltrates and invades and changes all as we see our Savior, Jesus Christ, all the more clearly. We thank you, Father, for this time in which you give us freedom and even comfort with which to turn all of our attention to you. Be worshipped, Lord, as we hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, it is my... Deep joy to be here with all of you again. Um, this is my third time, once in the fall, once this is a, no, no, let's see, once in the summer, once in the fall, and now winter. I'm already looking forward to hopefully summer. But uh, your comments to me are not reassuring. Oh, it's so good to see you again. Oh, I can't wait to hear the message that you're going to give. It brings pressure. <laughs> and... Honestly, I mean, I don't hear that much grace in there. You know, it might be better if you came to me and said, you know, you're not much to look at, but I like seeing you up there. That, that might set me at ease more. Or, um, or if I just happen to bomb a sermon and then I get invited back, then I'll be comfortable. But as to all your questions, do I feel more comfortable having this be my third time? No, I do not. Partly because Pastor John has left me in the middle of a text study that you've already been in for a couple months, it seems, 
And uh, so I'm coming in cold this week. And also, he gives me, I'm going to say it, the hardest passage in the letter. (laughs) Partly because it seems so disconnected in some ways, or multiply connected to other places. And so, uh, but he actually warned me about this going in. He gave me the chance to opt out and preach something else. But I said, no, I want to be part of the the series, just taken straight from the text this time. Um, So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 is our text today. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to jump right into this. Uh, As I say that, All right, there we go. All right, there we go. We're going to start off with the mystery revealed. Paul, in this letter, just in these 13 verses alone, uses the word mystery, the Greek word mysterion, three times. Three times to describe this mystery made known to him by revelation, the mystery of Christ, and the administration of this mystery. So all of it has some crucial importance in the Ephesians' understanding of what Paul is trying to tell them, which you and I know very well, is the gospel. So let's look at the backdrop for this. I know that you guys have been in Ephesians for longer than I have, um, but the theme so far, and it carries throughout, so no changes there, is that Christ has united himself to us, He has united us to himself, and by doing that, he has reconciled us to God, because we were at enmity, we were at war with him before, and then he has made us united to each other, because he has mentioned the church in this letter, and he will continue to do so, even drawing a beautiful, 
beautiful metaphor between husbands and wives and Christ and the church. Oh, you have such wonderful things to look forward to. And so this theme is the backdrop in which Paul is giving this passage right here. That theme of being in Christ and having everything good that we have in Christ. Reconciliation with God. Union with each other is in Christ. In Christ and in Him appears 11 times up to this point in Ephesians. Just up to chapter 3, verse 13. I haven't counted how many more times it appears. But obviously, Paul is pounding this drum. It is in Christ that we have all of these spiritual blessings that we are made alive and new and made one in Christ. Paul is writing in chains, he says. He says that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And so we have to assume that, judging from Acts, and if you're going to read any of Paul's letters, you have to read Acts, especially the parts where Paul is part of. All right, Because that's the narrative, history, the backdrop against which all these letters are being written. There are events that took place prior to this. And so what do we see? We see that he was with the church of Ephesus. In fact, he helped start it. And he was with them for over two years. He was with them for over two years, starting off in the synagogue until they got kicked out. And then he lectured in the halls of Tyrannus. Which is an odd name, because you wouldn't think a guy named Tyrannus would let someone like Paul use that place. You know. But anyway, so... There for two years and three months, and then he leaves. In fact, the thing that he tells to them when he leaves is that you're never going to see me again. Because he knows what's coming. All right? He, through the Holy Spirit, is anticipating the suffering and even this imprisonment because someone's going to come up to him as he leaves Ephesus, binds his hands and say, you will be led away like this. He knows that that's what's happening, and, so, and now they see that that's exactly what happened. He's in chains, probably in Rome, writing this letter during that imprisonment. Now, I enjoy bringing this to you because I know that John has already talked to you about these things. But what is the purpose of this text? That's the first thing that he had me think about when, before he even asked me to preach my first message here. He had me read a book by John Adams on the purpose of preaching. So, so I'm very happy to to bring it to you all. What is the purpose of this text? Why does Paul interrupt himself? Because as you've heard me read, it's like he stutters. It's like he stops. You know, for, for this reason, I, Paul, well, he already gave an introduction at, this begin, at the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's enough of a greeting for an, a letter like this. But he punctuates it to say his situation and what's happening in his life. And then he goes on to say, surely you have heard, and he's being tongue-in-cheek here. It's a rhetorical device, because being with them for two, and a, two years, three months, they know his conversion story. They've heard all about the road to Damascus and being struck down by blinding light, blinded, and being the last apostle to witness Jesus Christ in his resurrection on earth. They know all that. And they've heard about him being in chains. So what's the purpose is what we're going to find out. Now, it might take us to the end of this time to see that. But track along with me and ask the questions. Why would Paul be interrupting himself this way? What's the reason? 
Because he's giving stuff in one sense that they already know and have heard. The first part is almost a theological treatise. They call Ephesians mini-Romans. That if you don't have time to delve through the depths of Romans, go to Ephesians. And then you'll see a shorter truncated version. Maybe that's good for a mission field. All right? Or a summer series with the youth group or something where you know that you're not going to have time to do all 16 chapters of Romans, but you can do six chapters of Ephesians. But then this, this is story. And he wraps it up in saying, there is mystery here. Now the Greek word mystery, um, mysterion, doesn't mean exactly what our English word for mystery is. But it did mean, in classical definition, a hidden thing, a secret. And back then there was something called the mystery religions. All right? These were cults that kind of had, it's kind of like Scientology today, all right? where you had these levels inside that you would achieve and attain, and then you would get passwords and codes that would somehow unlock the next level of awakening. All right? And so only the people on the inside had that knowledge, and they were using this word, mysterion, to say there's stuff that we know that you don't. So ha-ha, near, near, all right? So it was a way of keeping people out and letting them just say who's, got, who's in. And that was the word that they used, musterion. Paul takes it, and he runs a different direction with it. And what is the direction that he runs? All right? This is, this is the mystery. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ. Now, on one hand, to our, I'll say it, jaded ears, maybe this doesn't strike us as very much. Maybe you already know, in fact, I know that you already know, what the word Gentile means. You guys are Gentiles. Well, every one of you except those who are ethnically Jewish. All right? So, all the rest of you are Gentiles. And so maybe it's not an offensive thing or, you know, just, it's just what it means to you. Gentile meaning non-Jew. There's Jews and there's non-Jews. And the non-Jew word is Gentile, right? And so maybe you're just like, all right, so this is where Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is for everyone. In your John 3.16 understanding of Scripture, for God so loved the world, it's kind of, all right, that's not big news. I, I kind of got that already. The thing is, is that this was huge back in this time. Again, it's about the context. Paul is writing to a particular group of people with a particular understanding, and we've got to unpack that a little bit in order to get what they're talking about. All right? And we're going to get to that in a second, but I'm just whetting your appetite for this. All right? But we're moving on. So there's a mystery revealed, and this is what it is, that Jesus Christ, Gentiles and Jews are united in him together. But then Paul goes on into his own personal history of salvation. You know, we have a fancy word for that in theological circles called historia salutis. I think it's Latin. I have to say I think because I'm not sure. So it could be Greek, but it sounds Latin. So historia salutis, the history of salvation. That there is how God has entered time to redeem his people. And how that happens is that history. And 
you've been at this church for a while, and so I know that you know what that means. You have creation. God created everything. The fall. Man ruined it. Redemption. Climaxing in Jesus Christ. And then our anticipation of restoration. All right? Of being made completely whole. All right? So that is what we would call the history of redemption. And you can say from Genesis to Revelation, it encompasses all of that. And it's all about Jesus Christ. But Paul takes it a step further. And he shares his story against that backdrop. He embeds his history, his personal history of salvation against the ultimate history of salvation. Now, why would he do this? Well, there's a lot of whys that we can ask. Why did Paul change his name from Saul? Scripture never exactly tells why that happens. I'm telling you that there is a connection. Paul, in uh, Greek, it's a Greek name. Saul is a Hebrew name. And we know, I mean, hopefully you know who Saul is. Saul was the first king of Israel. You know, in the, in the united monarchy, there was Saul, there was David, and then there was Solomon. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was tall and good-looking and all those kind of things. He looked powerful. He looked kingly. And, uh, and Saul was named after that Saul. And he was from that tribe of Benjamin. And the Benjamites were really big on the fact that they got the other king. The Jews from Judah, tribe of Judah, they got David and Solomon, but haha, we got Saul. And so when Paul talks about his previous bragging rights, he would say that I was circumcised on the eighth day, born of the tribe of Benjamin, all right? And he doesn't say, but it's obvious, I was named after Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was all that. And so in his own eyes and in the eyes of others, he was big. But he takes on a Greek name after he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, which means little or small. We've seen this before in the gospel. John the Baptist himself said when his disciples were saying, all the people who used to follow you are following Jesus now. And John just tells them, deadpan, I mean, I'm assuming deadpan, that he must become greater, I must become less. And so Paul, in his life, in telling his story, do you see what's happening here? He is saying that the mystery, now normally you have to work really hard at uncovering mysteries, was revealed to me. Okay, there's no effort in that. He gets it. He just gets it. It's given to him. And then he even goes on and reminding them of his story. He actually, and he tells people, you know, I am the least of the people of God. I am less than the least of all God's people. And what is he saying there? I used to go around and getting people tossed in jail. I used to go around advocating murder of my people who believed in Jesus Christ. Because he went after Jewish Christians. All right? As a Jew empowered by Rome, he was authorized to go after Jews for Jewish practice uh, violations. And so that's what he did. As if people had to be reminded that, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe the Apostle Paul is like so wonderful and loving and complete change from the old Saul that people forgot he used to be a murderer. But he gives them reason. He tells them, no, I am less than the least, but grace comes to me. 
to say that there is nothing you could do to deserve grace. But then also knowing that there is nothing that you can do to get rid of grace. And so what is Paul doing here? In telling his story and knowing his story, he strengthens his faith and he keeps his former sense of entitlement away. I mean, you can understand that sense of entitlement, right? I mean, I, just, I don't want to bring out a name, but I mean, it's pretty obvious. This week, apparently during the 700 Club, someone mentioned that the things that happened to, to Haiti this week were God's judgment on them. And there was this huge outcry among the world saying, you know, just, oh, this is why Christians are idiots. So because they believe this. I don't believe that. As if to say that we are protected in some way, because we're Christians. You know, the majority of history, and even the majority of Christians all over the world, don't live in the conditions that we have, and don't get to worship the way that we do. And so, no, I can't believe that God has rained down any kind of judgment on Haiti, because they are somehow worse than us. And it is because I know how much I am the least of all God's people, that I can say, no, if anyone deserves judgment, it's me. See, if I'm going to say that there's one thing wrong in Scripture, it's where Paul says this, that he's the least. He might think he's the least, but I know who's the least. Because I know me better than I know Paul or any of you. And this is what gives us this perspective. But there's more than that. You see, I say that he embeds his personal history of salvation in the overall history of salvation. See, this whole Jew-Gentile thing isn't this neutral kind of black and white kind of deal. Or, hey, you know, I'm Korean and you're non-Korean kind of deal. Although, I did a little bit of searching on Wikipedia. And no, no language describes other people in a favorable way. All right? So just looking up what Asians call Caucasians, all right? The Japanese call you white devils, all right? Those of you who are Caucasian, sorry. The Chinese, ghosts. And the, uh, the Korean, Korean, see, I, I can't find, I'm, my Korean's, the, out of, I'm, I practically know better Japanese and Chinese than Korean. Okay, that's not true, but my Korean's really bad. So, and I don't use it to, ever, not because I don't want to show off, because I sound like a hick. So... <laughs> The southern part of Korea is where the hick-sounding dialect is. I didn't know that until I spoke Korean out loud for the first time in front of other Koreans. So we have this way of distancing and separating us from other people. And that's what the Jew-Gentile distinction was. You see, in the Old Testament, there were God's people. They were originally just one family or one line. Ultimately, it started exploding from Abraham. From Abraham, God gives Abraham a promise that I will make you into a nation. I will make your name great. I will bless you and you will be a blessing and all nations on earth will be blessed through you. All right? And so it goes from there to Israel, Jacob, renamed Israel, to the 12 tribes. Okay? But then through their unfaithfulness and God wanting to remind them that he is their God and not anyone else, he gets them conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all these Phoenician worship practices come in. And everyone who is anyone kicks them hard. 
So ultimately, there's only one little tribe left. It's a remnant of one tribe. That's Judah, which is where we get the word Judaism and the word Jew. Okay? So that's, that's the history, the etymology of all of that. And the Jewish people held on to their distinctiveness. They recognized that they were the last part of the world that were holding on to and believing that the God of their Torah was God. And so they set up rules saying that, you know, just following scripture, following God's rules, we're going to be set, our, set apart. We're going to be clean, which means that others are unclean. They're already unclean, but let's do this to be clean. All right? Let us be righteous before God. And so the word Gentile meant unclean, unrighteous, unchosen. Against that backdrop, now you start getting the awe that Paul and the rest of these guys had. Peter, Peter had this vision from heaven that God lowered this tarp with all of these animals that were in the Old Testament considered unclean. The Jewish people could not eat things with a cloven hoof. They couldn't eat shellfish. They couldn't eat a whole lot of things. Pigs. Pigs is number, like, practically number one on that list. I could never have survived in Old Testament Israel. So, and just... Peter said, and God said, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord, I have never let anything unclean pass my lips. And God says, don't let, call anything I have created unclean. Then you know what happens right after that? He preaches. Gentiles want to hear him preach the gospel. He preaches, and then just things happen. Incredible things happen. The same Holy Spirit that came down on Pentecost on all these Jewish Christians came down on all these Gentiles. Now, Peter had to defend himself in front of other Jewish Christians. They said, what are you doing? Because they didn't get it. And Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remember what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance into life. And it's at that point that the word Gentile no longer means unclean, unrighteous, and unchosen. And Paul, this is a common theme in all, he goes before the council in Jerusalem because people during that time, some hardcore, like ridiculously hardcore people were saying that, oh, any Gentile Christian who wants to be a Christian has to be circumcised like Jews, Jews do. Because if you want to be a Christian, you've got to be like a Jew. And Paul says, no, that's not at all how it is. And he actually goes to Jerusalem before the council of elders, before the apostles, before James, the brother of Jesus. And makes this case. And they agree with him. And say, go. Go and minister to the Gentiles as we minister to the Jews. And do not lay any of these burdens on them. Except for not eating uh, like food sacrificed to idols, strangled animals, and sexual immorality. Just tell them to stay away from that. Even these guys were stunned Jesus Christ died for them too? 
Actually, in the Gospels, we see Jesus and his concern. When he goes into the temple, there's an outer courtyard. Do you know what that outer courtyard was for? That was where Gentiles who believed in God, the God of the Old Testament, all right, they believed in Torah, they were God-fearing Gentiles, they could come in and pray. But they weren't allowed to go any further or deeper than that. That was left only for the Jews, only for God's chosen people. Jesus goes into the temple when he hits Jerusalem, and what does he find? Money changers and offering animal salesmen. And what does he do? He thrashes them with rope and says, Get out! My father's house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. See, that's not Jews he was concerned for there, because as far, you know, as, far as Jewish practices went, that was convenient for Jews. Jews could go. They could go to their vending machine and like change their money into temple money and then go to get their pigeons and their, their rams and stuff. And then they could go in deeper. It was the Gentiles. It was the non-Jews. It was the people considered previously outside that, were there, that would have been there. And that is who Jesus was sticking up for. Now, what do we do with this? Honestly, um, grace is not amazing enough to any of us. Grace is not amazing enough to any of us. But one way that we can continue to expand our understanding of how incredible grace is is to understand our personal history of salvation. All right? I can tell you this. In growing up in Korean churches I had for almost my entire life, I get into this just very narrow bandwidth of what I believe the church is like. In fact, when I first went off to college, there were only four Koreans in my class. And Colorado, despite what you may have heard, is not a place brimming with Asians just coming out of the mountains, all right? So I go there, and I try worshiping then, because Colorado Springs, you have to understand, is where navigators and intervarsity and any Christian work focus on the family, any Christian organization worth its salt is in Colorado Springs. So I figure I'm going to be able to find a church. I go to a good big church for the first time, and I'm just sitting there, and it's like, what the heck is this? See, I found that I couldn't or wouldn't worship with non-Koreans. All right? You Gentiles to, to my Korean Jewishness. It was so different, and I realized that there is a culture that I had allied myself with that was different from what the gospel was telling me to. I found that for years, and uh, thankfully things have changed, haven't they? And so I'm very, very glad of that. But we do this, all right? And then there, I'm, how narrow is my mind that I'm thinking, okay, Korean Christians, this, is, this could be my world you know, as it is. But even if I just trace Christianity in my lineage, it's only existed one generation before me. My father became the first Christian in our family. Now, how did he become a Christian? It's because people that looked a lot like a lot of you decided to send missionaries at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century to Korea. And so great names like William Hunt went to Korea, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of privation, in the midst of separation from family, he went. And because of that seed planted in the ground, 
I stand before you. I don't even have that to just, if there was just that, then maybe I could just say, ah, but you know what, all the rest of the Koreans got it that way too, so it's still, hey, Koreans. But, um, you know, just, but at the time when my dad was the only Christian in the family, Satan entered into the rest of the family via the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so my father's eldest brother, his fiancée, soon-to-be wife, bought into that lie and carried the rest of the family that direction. And so no matter how I look at it, I do not deserve to be here. And knowing that I don't deserve to be here, even amidst your company, much less reading the Word, makes grace that much more amazing to me. You all have this story. You only have to look far enough and deep enough. Watch a movie on the Reformation if you want to hear like just incredible things that have happened there. All right, and you know, just I, I understand now that you are not all as homogeneous as uh, so as uh, previously previously thought. And so each one of you have some incredible story, whether it's Germans or Italians or Irish. All right, just the gospel had some kind of miraculous suffering and persecution, and then explosion in each of these things, in each of these places. The gospel, wherever it goes, finds. It's people killed and martyred. But then that blood becomes the seed for the church. Think about that as we all, as the entire church, ramps up for Haiti. Because you, better than most, after being in Benin for these years, know know what it's going to take to bring the gospel to that dark, dark place. Perhaps God has set you apart for such a time as this. Now, here's the problem that the Jews fell into. They were God's people. But they weren't the ends, they were the means. They were not supposed to be the ultimate, you know, people of God. And even when you read Abraham, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God's promise to Abraham, blessing to all the nations, not that everyone would come and try to be ethnically Jewish and try and marry into Jewish families in that way. No even though that's what they kind of held to before. But no, there was something far greater. And this was the problem of the Pharisees and the Judaizers. They didn't want the greater. Their idea of the people of God, their idea of the church was a clubhouse. Now a clubhouse basically has the function of identifying who's outside and who gets to be inside. In one sense, a clubhouse, some of the, some of, I don't know, the, the worst clubs, I guess, they identify need and keep them out. And that was the problem here. And Paul rails against these Judaizers and Pharisees. He rages against those people who would say that you've got to get circumcised, you've got to be, obey Jewish dietary restrictions and cleanliness laws and all that if you want to be a Christian. And Paul said no. There is one thing required, and that is Christ, and Christ alone. And we see that God's heart in this was ever there, even in the Old Testament. Of Jesus, he says, It is too small a thing for you to bring, be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. 
So then the whole point of ethnic Israel, of them during the Old Testament time being God's people, was to keep a flame alive. See, when you're making a flame, all right, whether you're Boy Scouts or Eagle Scouts or ex-members of the military, you'll understand that a fire, you want it to be able to survive regardless of what's going on outside. In fact, the hottest fires can withstand even rain. All right? But that's not how it begins. And you start with a spark. And you cover it. And you protect it. To keep it alive until the time that it will fan out and be that light and that heat for everyone who needs it. And that was the purpose of God's people in the Old Testament until Jesus Christ came to be the light of the world. And then, and from Him, that spark became the fire that could never be quenched. And so, the question is, how do you view what you have been given that you do not deserve? Is it this clubhouse mentality that enjoys what we have, the comforts, the look of it? Or is it a mission that identifies need and goes there? That gives. Paul says he gives. He is giving up his life. He is giving up his freedom. And ultimately, it will cost him his life. And yet, he gives it all up because he sees that he has received what he does not deserve. And that is how you receive the gospel. That is how you welcome it. That's how you identify that it's alive and in you. This desire and willingness to go out. You know, I think Ed Welch has come and spoken here once before. So if, he's, if he hasn't, he's a, uh, my wife's boss and a good friend of our family and... Um, and a counselor at the Christian Counseling Educational Foundation. And he gives this illustration of this boat. Someone gave him a boat. It wasn't a huge boat, all right, but it was a nice boat with a mast and everything. And his family just got a kick out of it. But he knew he didn't do anything to deserve the boat. And so he didn't hold on to it like he deserved it. And so anyone who said, Ed, can I borrow your boat? He said, sure. Here's the keys. Lock it up when you're done. And... Everyone just wound up using this boat. Until one day when someone came back without the boat and said, Ed, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, but we sank the boat. And Ed goes, it's all right. Because he knows he never deserved it in the first place. And all he wanted to do with it was allow others to be blessed the way he had been blessed by it. How much more so the gospel? The gospel makes the distinction differently, saying that there is no more Jew or Gentile anymore. There is only the need that everyone has. You have one requirement in order to become a Christian, to be a sinner. We all have that. And if that's how we identify ourselves, then the grace that we receive is completely undeserved and we can go forth to all the others who are just like us.
some of us have to learn this lesson very, very painfully and through much shame because we hold on to an idea that we don't want to let go of. You know, after all those years in the military, I spent 10 years in uniform. I got tired of hearing how my friends were getting shot out of the skies over Iraq. And I got tired of hearing how many people died under just all of these horrible Middle Eastern countries. In fact, Iraq is not a Middle Eastern country, but that was my ignorance. And I resolved that, you know, whatever, let them die. Uh, or if they're not going to die, then just let someone else care about them because it's just not my lane. So I'll take care of America. I'll take care of anyone in America. I was, I was magnanimous. Anyone in America, God, I don't care. You know, just but I don't care about those places. And, um, and that distinction, I had made a group of people that I thought deserved the gospel less than myself. The second that you do that with anybody at all, you are saying that you deserve the gospel. Funny thing about the gospel is that when you think you deserve it, you don't. But when you know you don't deserve it is when it's freely given to you. And God, in his grace and mercy, eradicated so my heart against Iraqi Muslims by, uh, this is funny, my uh, senior pastor at my last church said, you know what, we need a team leader for our mission team to London. Oh yeah, who are we going with? Arab World Ministries. Really? And so, what am I going to tell him? Sorry boss, but I hate Muslims. Okay, I was already, in Korean church, I was already called a pastor back then, so it's not the kind of thing that you know you can get away with. All right? So I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? I went half-heartedly, but I said, God, if you're bringing me there, then let's, let's have it. Let's see it. And I go there, and the teaching sessions are all taught by Middle Eastern or Egyptian or Iraqi believers. All right? The one guy who made the biggest impression on me, his name was Ivan. I'm not sure how Ivan winds up being an Iraqi name, but... And he turns out to be an even bigger Lord of the Rings nut than I am. He has a Lord of the Rings monopoly set. His idea of fun is dragging his friends into playing this. You know, just when they've got great scenery and they're on some scenic trip or whatever, all around, he wants to play Lord of the Rings monopoly. I don't, I don't even know what it looks like. Maybe the, maybe the uh, hotels or the towers or, or something. I don't know. It's just, but oh, it sounds great. And in meeting him and seeing his fervor for the Lord, I was shattered. A 10-year easy hatred turned into what had to be years of repentance that I would think that there was anyone less worthy of the gospel than I. And so yet again, I take the trophy from the Apostle Paul. But... Paul has this. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew in order, chronologically. Then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live 
by faith. And so now we get to the point that Paul kind of clearly laid out, and so maybe it wasn't that difficult. Paul's purpose for this was to show and to remind the amazing grace by which we are saved, which was revealed to us in Christ. That's the first half. Then the second point was to say that that grace sends you out to those who you know so well because you didn't deserve the gospel either. You know, in America, we have this real way about us. Even the Christians all over the world will just, they don't, they're polite, so they don't say it, but they see it. That we kind of take this, appropriate this um, Christian nation understanding. That we kind of say, all right, so this is how a Christian nation acts. Dear Lord, I hope it's not. I mean, I love this country, and I was willing to die for this country, and still am, and yet, man, I hope it's not. Because we need to do and be so much more. Let us not have this view of others that even as we go on mission says that they're beneath us and because they're worthy of our contempt, we condescend. No. If Paul is right, and he is, saying there is no Jew or Gentile or Scythian or anything else, there is no Roman or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or anything, but only Christ, then we go to share the gospel with those who are just like us, sinners in need of grace. And I leave you with this last picture, the one that will grow your heart to cause it to weep for all those who make you uncomfortable. Because this is what the heart of our God is. And don't you want to have the heart of our God? After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation. from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Let us sing praise and glory, wisdom and strength, honor and power and praise be to our God. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give such thanks to you for what you have shown to us in Christ. And that Paul, the apostle, gives his story. And yet, he encourages us to all know our story, that we were each as depraved and in need of your grace. Lord, let us see that grace, amazing and awesome as it is, and go forth and share it with all who are just like us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.